Hey everyone, we've got an exciting new episode today. And first, a quick word about one of our sponsors. Jason Hennessy uses SEO to generate millions of dollars in results for law firms across the country. In his new book, Law Firm SEO, Jason takes you behind the scenes to see what actually works to rank on Google. Pick up a copy today of Law Firm SEO on Amazon or download it on Audible for just $25. Do you love what Lawful Good stands for, celebrating our shared humanity? Then you'll love our new LinkedIn group called Better Together. Better Together is a group for attorneys and those working in the legal space focused on promoting authentic human connection. Head over to joinbettertogether.com and it'll take you to our LinkedIn group. I literally was able to put myself on this path because of what I was exposed to options and opportunities by complete strangers. And when you do that, you will never ever know the impact that you make. Like there will be ripple effects from that. If you change someone's life just by being kind and having them feel good about themselves, you now have changed generations because they're not going to continue whatever cycle it is, right? They're going to look at themselves differently. Welcome to Lawful Good, a show about lawyers and the trials they face inside and outside the courtroom. I'm your host, Luke W. Russell. I'm not a journalist. I'm not an attorney. I'm trained as a coach. I love human connection, and that's what you're about to hear. My guest today is Regina Calcaterra, co-founder of the Calcaterra Pollock Law Firm and author of the best-selling memoir, Etched in Sand. Regina was one of five children, all of whom were emotionally and physically abused by their mother. With their basic physical needs unmet, she and her siblings became each other's support system until they were taken into foster care and separated. Regina had already overcome the odds when she graduated college, and then she went on to graduate law school at night while holding down a full-time job. Over the years, Regina's service to others has moved fluidly between the public and private spheres. She lobbied for disabled veterans to help craft the Americans with Disabilities Act and eventually served as chief deputy for the same county where she grew up abused and starving. In this episode, we discuss her traumatic childhood, why diversity is so important to her law firm, and why it was so meaningful when she was asked to be a forever mom. A note to our listeners, Regina and I make reference to physical and sexual abuse in this episode. While we won't discuss graphic details, listener discretion is advised. So, Regina, when I went to buy your book on Audible, Etched in Sand, I noticed that your name was listed as the narrator. And as an avid audiobook listener, I'm always skeptical when I see the author was also the reader. Because let's face it, not everybody's great at reading. So what was it like narrating your own story? Well, first, I will tell you, I was of the mindset that you were. When HarperCollins asked me to narrate my book, I said, 
don't you have professionals that do that? Aren't there people who actually get paid to do this and do this very well? And um, because I never planned to narrate my book, really had no time to be the best narrator that, you know, thought I could be just because I just didn't have, there were so many limitations with my schedule. So I pushed back as much as possible, but they thought that, you know, my story should be told by me. So the experience was very stressful. And because of, you know, the limited amount of time and preparation, because, you know, you could write a book, but I've never read the book out loud before. Yeah. There was no reason for me to read the book. And I don't read, pa- when, I, when I present, I do not read passages from my book. Yeah. And not only were you doing something you were unfamiliar with under a time crunch, but you were also reliving some incredibly painful experiences. I imagine that made the process even more difficult. You know, I worked with a fantastic producer, Scott Sherritt. In the past, he's worked with other book authors, too, who were you know survivors of sexual assault and wrote their own book and didn't have the experience. And he had so much patience and, and understood that at times when you know, I had to say something out loud that was really tragic that I was just getting stuck and I actually couldn't say it. So because of, um, you know, his great talent and skill, we managed to get through it in a few days, (laughs) but it wasn't, it wasn't, for me, it wasn't joyful at all. It wasn't, you know, therapeutic. It didn't, you know, make me feel better that I narrated myself. I just hope that the editing that was going to be done was going to be done in a way that, you know, people wouldn't bomb the narration of it. So I would take any constructive criticism, but trust me, I will not go back to fix it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was, for as a listener, I was really delighted. I found it to be an exceptional experience. What's it like listening to your voice? Did you ever listen to any, any of the recording? I have tried to listen instead of sitting down and reading it again. I'm probably like many people, you don't necessarily like the sound of your own voice. I mean, I'm sure there are people that are, you know, I've tried, but I haven't gotten through through the whole book. I think I've just gotten through the first maybe four chapters of listening to me. And I thought, I think that's enough. And I'll just go back and read it now. (laughs) (laughs) Did you listen to your sister's narration of her book? Oh, yes. What was that like? You know, I was there for that too. It was because she came to New York and she also uh, worked with Scott Sherrod, who did, again, a, a fantastic job with her too. And uh, for me, the the whole thing was very painful. I think it was for her, it wasn't at all challenging for me to write my book. It wasn't painful. But for me to share Rosie's story, you know, to write it and then hear her narrate it and hear her choke up, you know, when we got to really tough parts, was just a reinforcement of, you know, horrific experience she had, but was is also a reinforcement of how resilient she really was. So in, in one hand, I was sitting there as the older sister who always felt responsible for her and should have been protecting her and where I couldn't protect her. And on the other hand, just hearing her share her story was giving the power to her and taking it away from my mother, taking it away from the abusers. And she was owning it and she was putting the blame on them. Yeah. Many of our listeners are going to be unfamiliar with your story. And so I'd I'd love to turn to your childhood. You are the middle of five, your oldest sister, Sherry, then there's Camille, you, then your brother, Norman, and Rosie. You know, as you chronicle in your book, Etched in Sand, your birth mother, Cookie, was in and out. She was physically, emotionally abusive. You were abused by foster families, sexually assaulted. You moved from place to place, and when social workers stepped in, you were split. Also, in the words of your sister, Camille, she said, you know, there were moments where we had so much fun. Imagine five kids, we loved dancing, 
rearranging the living room, the Broadway plays, singing to Greece, picnics, dancing in the rain. We'd walk down to the beach and get mussels and go back and cook them. Where should we begin? So we were five kids with five different fathers. And our mother, none of our fathers stuck around. Um, my mother was mentally ill. She was, this was the 1960s and 70s when we were born. We grew up on Long Island, the eastern end, which is the county of Suffolk. And we were living in suburbia, basically. And we were five kids with a mother who was drug and alcohol addicted and mentally ill. And she was drug and alcohol addicted, you know, started from the fact that she needed to self-medicate because of her mental illness. Um, later on in life, she was diagnosed as being bipolar, but that wasn't something that was really diagnosed back then. So she would just abandon us all these different places. And, you know, sometimes we would be living in houses or apartments. And, but we always ended up, for a while, but we'd always end up getting evicted after, you know, my mother didn't pay the rent that she needed to pay. So when we didn't have places to live, we lived behind supermarkets, on the streets, out of cars. Um, we'd be put into homeless shelters. And when the authorities found out what was going on, they picked us up and put us into these separate foster homes. And because they would never keep five kids together. And so we, like Camille said, we when we were together, meaning that when we were under our mother's care, part of that was stealing food to eat, which is something that we did all the time. Because my mother would basically take, you know, saw each one of us as a welfare check and would take most of that check to take care of her, her addiction. So, and sometimes she would leave money behind, but we had to figure out these inventive ways, you know, to live and survive in the middle of suburbia while we did not want anyone really to be paying attention to like who we were. We never want to pop our head up. We never want to look too obvious because we knew if we stuck out, people would realize that we were abandoned, we were neglected. I mean, we were emaciated. We really weren't taking baths. I mean, what child takes a bath if a parent isn't going to be around to tell them to take a bath, right? We didn't have a washing machine. We were washing clothes by ourselves with our own hands. No one was really teaching us how to, like, you know, blow our nose. And we shared the same toothbrush. We are too busy stealing food, not, you know, not thinking about our dental hygiene. But notwithstanding that, we did try our best to kind of fit in. But we still were kids, and we still wanted to be kids. So we would, like, walk miles and miles and miles and go to a public library, you know, when we had nothing else to do because temperature controlled, and we would find things to do there. And uh, we would walk miles, 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 you know, literally to go to beaches, to go to farms, to go to playgrounds. I mean, we needed to entertain each other. And we were like children of that era when, you know, a few cardboard boxes may be enough to kind of create a little bus and you put a kid on a chair at the front and that's the bus driver and everyone plays, you know, get on the bus. And even though with all of this trauma and drama that we were subjected to, we knew how to love. Do you feel like you and your siblings had a model for what love was at that point in your lives? We were taught how to be a family and how to love by a foster home that we were put in when we were little and by my aunt who I was abandoned with before that, my aunt and uncle and her six kids. Like I remember being loved in that house, what it was like to eat, what it was like to be in a family. And the next foster home that we were put in was a fantastic foster home. They were one of the two best foster parents that we had. And they wanted to adopt me and possibly my sisters, but my mother wouldn't let them do it. She wouldn't relinquish her parental rights over us because, again, we were a paycheck. So we were these little girls who like took the experience that we had, you know, with my aunt and uncle for a while. And then, then when we were in a foster home, we took that and we applied it to our younger siblings because we realized when we went back with our mother, we weren't being cared for and loved, but we knew how it was to do that. And we tried to insulate that. 
So we did it in all the ways that Camille said that we would do it. We would get on chairs, we would bear hairbrushes, we would sing like every Motown song that we could ever possibly think of. And um, we did our best to just be kids to the extent that we were allowed to in the middle of this trauma. Yeah. So then I believe you and Camille were with two foster parents after you'd been split up. And then this is the family that would help lay the groundwork for you to where you ultimately would end up going to college against all odds of, of foster kiddos. Yes, no, absolutely. What happened is, you know, at a certain point when we were younger, my two older sisters kind of moved on a bit. And what that means is that, you know, they were teenagers who spent their entire time hurt their entire life, like raising their younger siblings. And they just wanted to go be teens and they want to hang out at their friend's house and sleep over and go out with their boyfriends and not be responsible for three kids and, you know, psychotic mother. So they were spending more and more time away. And I was the one who was then primarily responsible for Rosie and Norman. And things were really going awry because it was easier for us to parent them when there was three of them versus one of them. I mean, I wasn't able to really steal food with them. They weren't sophisticated at doing that. You know, that's not something we ever asked them to do before. Yeah. So, you know, things really started going haywire during that time. Um, my mother came home from one of her drunken binges and she beat me really, really bad. And, you know, I was subjected to so many very brutal beatings, but this one was really took a toll on me because I was emaciated at that point. You could see my bones through my body. I mean, I was barely eating because any food that we had, I would give to my younger siblings. And I wasn't able to hide the bruises and the scars like I was in the past. So when a teacher at school saw me after a conversation with, he had with me where he tried to get me to say something, he ended up calling social services. And um, they came to our home at that particular time. You know, We were never telling anyone in the social service system what was going on. We never told the authorities. We never told the police. We didn't want to let anyone know because we were so fearful of being separated and put into foster homes because that's what they would do with five kids. But I broke down. I mean, I was so broken at that point. I broke down. I was hoping that maybe the kids would go into a safe home and I, I would be able to go with them there. And so I told social services what has been going on our entire life. Then they ended up showing up the next day. And we saw, you know, in the driveway, the worst thing that a child who has siblings and is in and out of the foster care system could ever see in the driveway is two cars. One car took my sibling, Camille, and I to one foster home, and the other car took Rosie and Norman to a different foster home. And we were told not to contact them at all because they needed to transition into their home. As opposed to this day and age, they would never do that. They would try to keep the siblings together. They would make sure that there's relationships there and they're maintained. They don't want to add trauma on top of trauma. But back then, they separated us and we weren't allowed to speak. And after that happened, a few weeks later, when we went to go visit Norman and Rosie around Christmas time, this was in 1980, my mother had illegally removed them from the foster home. And this day and age, that would be called kidnapping. But back then, the social service system said, oh, you know, let her keep her. Let, let, let them hold on to her for a little while. She may just do better with just two kids instead of five. And then she ended up making her way to Idaho with them to avoid, you know, everything that she did in New York. So you're 14 and living in a foster home. Your mom has kidnapped your two youngest siblings and taken them to Idaho. And meanwhile, you're working on the legal process to end your mother's guardianship rights. What was that process like? I submitted facts to the court. Now, I was 
14 years old and I was writing a legal affidavit (laughs) explaining to the court everything that happened to us, hoping that the courts would relinquish my mother's guardianship rights over my younger siblings so they would be freed for adoption and have a chance to be in a good family and that would emancipate me. And I knew at the age of 14 what emancipation was. And in the state of New York, a 14-year-old can emancipate themselves from their parent. And you know this stuff when you're a street kid. I mean, you know how to avoid the police. You know you know issues of truancy. You know when you could continue running away and the police aren't going to look for you anymore. And um, we knew about emancipation when it was that we could you know, potentially divorce our mother. So I took that information and submitted it to the court. And my sisters, two older sisters, you know, added information and signed that. And I ultimately, you know, became emancipated and I was in this foster home, but it wasn't anything that felt good because my two younger siblings were now in Idaho and I had no way to contact them and to see what is happening to them. So we had to be inventive in how it was that we could track them down back then before the internet, when you only had one yellow phone on a wall and it was a long wire, there was no other way of communication. There was no such thing as a fax machine back then. So while I was in this foster home, I was able to be there all throughout high school. And that is what made a difference in my life is that even though the home was not the most loving home, like I felt a part of it was a bit transactional. And you have that with many forced parents. Like there, I, I always kind of group forced parents in three groups, right? Those that do it for the love, those that abuse the kids, and then everyone in between. Sometimes it's transactional and it's a paycheck and it's to help cover their overhead, but they're necessary. You know, the ones that love these kids are necessary. Those are necessary because you need places for these kids to go, whether or not that's love or not. You need them to just be safe. So, you know, it's this kind of a home. And I made a calculated decision that if I don't stay in this home, I'm going to go to a group shelter. And at that time, the group shelters on Long Island, it was known. And the New York Times even wrote about it at that time. There was like massive gang rapes that were happening at these group homes. So like this was it. If I didn't like stay at this home, I, I knew what was going to happen to me when I went elsewhere. So you were dealing with the emotional stress of trying to find your younger siblings and trying to convince the state of Idaho that they were in danger. But you're also starting to think about getting a college degree, which is not something most kids that go through the foster care system accomplish. What was different for you? I had these fantastic teachers that knew that things weren't right for me, but also knew I was like a very committed, disciplined child and kept telling me over and over again that I'm going to go to college and I have to go to college. And the only way I can control my destiny is to get an education. Then that will lift me out of poverty. So they put me in every AP class that they could to help me like advance, you know, uh, college education. They signed me up for the ACT and SAT classes. I really didn't know what it was I was studying. You know, I didn't get like these really competitive scores on it. And they said, you know, I should apply because I wasn't like my foster parents were not supportive of me going to college. My caseworker wasn't supportive of me going to college. They were used to kids aging out of the system at the age of 18 and moving out and getting their own job. I I had a battle with my foster parents on this and my caseworker. And, you know, my caseworker said, you're not going to go to college because foster kids don't go to college. And more, more, you know, importantly, they don't, if they do, they don't graduate. Back then in 1980, less than 1% of the foster care population in the United States graduated college. And as I understand it, you finally attend Stony Brook University in New York and almost immediately start failing out, which must have been so difficult to have been fighting with these authority figures saying, no, I can do this, and then feeling like maybe everything they had been saying was right. 
I also knew what my fate was. Half of the um, homeless population in the United States are former fosters, and a third of the incarcerated are former fosters. I mean, so I still had to eat when I was little, and no one ever called the police on me. But if when I was 18, if I was kicked out of my foster home, and I went to go steal food, you better believe at 18, the police are going to be called. No one's going to bail me out. It's going to start my journey in the criminal justice system. And back then, you would have to disclose all the time when you were arrested. And then that's that's it for the rest of your life. And I had an understanding of that. So I was just so focused on going to college. So even when I wasn't doing well at Stony Brook, I ultimately did transfer to a smaller state SUNY school, SUNY New Paltz, which is in the Hudson Valley in New York. And I ended up you know, getting my grades up and graduating and becoming a poli-sci major and doing every internship I possibly could and uh, fell in love with the Constitution because my constitutional professor, Nancy Cassop, loved the Constitution so much that like, her enthusiasm like fed into me. I didn't realize it at that point, but that first, the affidavit when I was 14, I had to submit to the court, should have been a sign that maybe one day I'll do something in the law. But my love for the U.S. Constitution from my and, and the political system and governing and public policy from what I learned at this small, you know, back then, the sleepy, really party school, everyone kind of knew it as. But, but for me, it, it was my pipeline and it was somewhat my anti-poverty degree that really started me, you know, towards a, a career in public policy. And, you know, if you think about my journey that I've had, I was able to do it because it was I was here in the U.S. And I say that all the time because my siblings and I, and I realized this when I, I was in college, when I was taking a class on international politics, and um, this was in 1987, and you had baby Dr. Duvalle, you know, in, in Haiti, you had the Marcos regime, you had the Afghanistan conflict, learning how people lived in different countries. And I realized that so many of these countries just didn't have a social safety net. And if my siblings and I were born into these countries, we would have never survived or we would have been sex trafficked or become child warriors. When I started realizing that, I started getting less angry. I realized I was born into a country where there were enough resources available that I just need to figure out how to take advantage of them and how to harness them. And so that's what like got me so impassioned with public policy and government and how I was able to get to where I got to as opposed to be a statistic. Yeah. When did you realize you were great at winning arguments? I don't know if I was great at winning arguments. I wouldn't stop until I got the last word in. And I realized that I think when I was about 12, 13 years old with my uncle, my mother's brother, who just disdained me as much as I disdained him. And I would just never let him control me. Like he, he always try to, you know, control my siblings and control me and put us down. And, you know, I just always felt like I was smarter than him, even though I was a young kid. And just because I felt wiser than him and I knew that he was bad. And I looked down at him as a 12 or 13 year old because of the things that he did and choices that he made and things that he did to some people I won't mention here. But I always would get the last word and remind him how strong I was. And so that's, that's when it started at 12 or 13. Yeah. So after you graduate in 1998, you spend a couple, two and a half years working for the Eastern Paralyzed Veterans Association, advocating for the rights of veterans. From there, you would go to the New Jersey Transit. You beat the odds in so many ways, but you also didn't grow up with the same experiences that many of your peers did. What were you learning and soaking in as an individual through this period? 
the experience with, with the Eastern Parallels Veterans Association, it frames me. I mean, I was able to get the job working for EPVA because of the internships that I did at SUNY New Paltz. One of them was a whole semester working with the state legislature. And I joined them in September 1988 while they were in the midst of pushing a new federal civil rights law called the Americans with Disabilities Act, which ultimately passed July 26, 1990 and was signed by George H.W. Bush. But while I was there, they actually hired me to help them advocate for them. And it was perfect for me because I had always advocated for myself. I tried to advocate for my siblings and I had to advocate for myself. That was the only way I actually got to where, you know, how I managed to, to graduate college. And, and even when, you know, when I was younger is now I'm advocating for men who are quadriplegics and paraplegics in wheelchairs. All of my bosses were quads and paras and they they were injured from the Korean War and the Vietnam War. And they, you know, they had their automobiles, they had them retrofitted, they were traveling across the U.S., they were doing tremendous fundraising, they were working with the Paralyzed Veterans of America and a lot of other disability rights groups across the U.S. And they hired me to help them be their advocate for them in New York and raise awareness about the need for ramps and, you know, for them to get in and out of buildings and a series of other things, elevators, and to use the rail lines and how to make them accessible. So I was there with them and, you know, I left in 1991 to go to New Jersey Transit, but I was there with them while they were doing this national lobbying effort. And I was learning everything about the ADA at that point that so many lawyers or architects just didn't know while it was being developed. And then when the USDOJ and the Federal Transit Authority, they were drafting notice of proposed rulemakings, I was commenting on them on behalf of the EPVA and including my other peers as well. So I, I was now commenting, I was like a young 20-something kid, and I was commenting on notice of proposed rulemaking on the last federal civil rights act that we actually had passed in this country. And they, it was done by these amazing people with disabilities that refused to let somebody else define them. And so I was very comfortable with my bosses and with my peers and, and colleagues out there nationwide because, you know, I also felt like I had an impediment. It wasn't a physical impediment, but I was socially and economically disadvantaged, you know, how I grew up. And I wouldn't let that stop me either. Right. So fast forward a year or two, you're hired by New Jersey Transit to help them implement the very ADA legislation you'd been working on and understood very well by this point. For obvious reasons, you're working with a lot of lawyers and you decide to apply to law school for night classes. How did that go? I was rejected from every law school I applied to that had a night program, except for Seton Hall. You know, when I went, when I transferred away, I did get my GPA up, but I only got it up to around like 2.8. And that's not enough to get into any law school. And my LSAT was competitive, but it wasn't skyrocketing either. So they looked at that and schools looked at that and then decided, you know, they weren't going to accept me. And in fact, I went on one interview at one school and they said, well, how come you couldn't get your grades up? And I said, well, I was in foster care and I'm trying to protect my siblings. I'm on my own and I'm working three jobs at once while I was at college to get through this. And the response from the interviewer was, well, weren't you used to it by then? And literally that's what the response was like. They didn't understand like, how far I actually came as a foster kid. They looked at it like, oh, well, you know, she's lazy. She's not studying. But there wasn't another minute left in a day to do one more, you know, to get anything else in. So I was accepted into Seton Hall, but it was conditional. 
because Seton Hall Law School, which was, by the way, just a few blocks away from New Jersey Transit, where I worked during the day, so then I could walk out down there at nighttime, they had a program called the Legal Educational Opportunity Program. It's a LEO program. And what they do is they look at applicants like me. And if you have like a competitive LSAT, but poor grades or vice versa, what they do is they test us. See, I wasn't admitted into Seton Hall. I got a letter saying, we think you'll be a good student, but we're going to put you through a few rings here. So what we had to do, anyone who was accepted into this program, the summer before, you've got to take about six weeks off and just go to law school. And if I'm on your own and you're going paycheck to paycheck, you can't take six weeks off. Like you need to have money to pay your bills. But I did it. I took six weeks off and you basically have to like show up every day on time. And the attitude is you can't get here at nine o'clock every day. You're never going to make it as a lawyer. You're not disciplined enough. So like a little thing like that, if you're late too many times, you're out. You couldn't go back to work. And if they found out that you were still working, that means you lied on the form that you filled out and you already committed a crime. So, you know, they say, you know, we don't want someone to purge themselves going to law school. You just basically, you had to take a few classes and get a B in it, which I did. And then I got accepted to the law school. So then I worked full-time during the day and went to law school at nighttime for four years. And again, my grades weren't great there. I, I mean, I was just, I had a very high level job. I was heading up intergovernmental relations for the New York City Comptroller. So I was a lobbyist for someone who's managing a pension fund of about like $150 billion. And I was lobbying for his chief lobbyist up in Albany and with the city council. And then I was going to law school at nighttime. So my grades weren't great. And I made a decision that, you know, they just don't have to be. Like, I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to get into the white shoe law firms. I don't have to go to a defense firm. I just got to get through it. And that's how I always thought about it in my life. It's like, I can't make big goals for myself because how am I supposed to do it if I'm completely on my own and I have no safety net and no one supporting me? I just got to keep moving forward. So when I found out I passed the bar in November of 1996, I just turned 30 a few weeks earlier and I was waiting near the mailbox. And I, you know, I know for lawyers who went to law school around that time, if you got a big, big envelope, it meant that you failed and you've got to apply. If you got a small envelope, it meant you passed. And the mailman handed me the letter and I opened it up. I fell to the floor. I started hyperventilating, crying. Because I had 30 years of like all of this just built up inside of me. And I realized for the first time, all I'm ever going to have to do for the rest of my life is just work one job. Like that's it. And I got there. And that's the message when I, when, you know, when I speak to other young people in similar situations, many who are in the system or who have been abandoned by their families or are EOP students who, who I was an educational opportunity student, I say, you don't have to be perfect. You just got to keep going. And one day you're going to get to a point where all you have to do is work one job. So just keep going and don't try for perfection and make small goals. You graduate, it's 1996. You've been working for the city and you continue working for the city in various positions, both for the county in the coming years as well, for quite some time before entering into private practice, including serving as chief deputy for the Suffolk County executive, which involved covering from Hurricane Sandy, you had Moreland commissions. When you look back and see who you are today, what do you think were those moments from there that really helped set you up to be the kind of attorney you are? I think those moments really started when I was younger. I mean, a lot of what I do is practicing law is, you know, I represent plaintiffs and I, I represent people who many of them are, are trauma informed. 
I know what it's like not to have a voice, for no one to listen to me, to not have any kind of representation, for no one stepping up. I did go to private practice for a while from 2004 to 2012. I was in, in a, a law firm for about eight years because I really felt, well, I, you know, I haven't written a brief because when you work in public policy as a lawyer or as like a lobbyist, you're not lawyering. It's really not. It's not litigating. It's, it's public policy. That's what it is. And I really felt like I needed to, you know, start learning that a bit because I always think about, you know, now my law degree is my anti-poverty degree. And if I don't know how to practice law, right, just because you go to law school doesn't mean that you know how to practice law. And if I'm only in the world of public policy, then what if one day I get fired or there's a change of administration and, you know, the new executive comes in and boots out everyone from the prior one, like, I'm going to have to work at a law firm and I have to figure this out. So I was recruited to go to a law firm in Philly where I was for eight years. And then in 2011, there was a race here on Long Island in Suffolk County. Now, Suffolk County is the county I grew up in as a homeless kid and in foster care. And just to give you an understanding of Suffolk County, it has a million and a half employees, had a workforce of close to 10,000 and and almost a $3 billion budget for a county. There are 12 states that are smaller than that as far as population, budget, and workforce. So this is pretty big. Steve Ballone, who won the race for county executive, he asked me to be his chief deputy county executive, right? So that means it's him and me. And then there's everybody else. And when he asked me that, I was like, really? Like, you you want me to help you run the county where I was a homeless kid? And his response was, nobody better. Yeah. And so you're now in a position to help people just like yourself and your siblings. At the same time, you've talked about how lots of decision makers in society sort of live in a bubble. And now you were part of that bubble. Do you feel like you were able to get outside of it and really make a difference in the lives of specific people? Within the first month, the very first month we were there, it was just actually, I think, two weeks into office. Newsday, which is the Long Island's newspaper, did a review of the Intel semifinalist. And front page of Newsday, two weeks into office, there's a young woman on there. Her name is Samantha Garvey. She was living in a homeless shelter with her parents and her two younger siblings, and she was an Intel semifinalist. And she was studying as hard as she was doing it because she wanted to show her younger sisters the only way out of poverty is an education. She was in a shelter and going to a school in Suffolk County. I'm now the chief deputy of Suffolk County. I've got the resources available at my fingertips to help her and her family. So we had one house, one house in Suffolk County that the county had available. And and I remember talking to the guys at Department of Public Works and they're like, the house is a mess. I'm like, well, it's only one school district over. They're like, it's a mess. And, you know, I'm thinking in my head, I can't say it to them. I'm like, I'm pretty sure it's a lot better than, than a homeless shelter where they are. And they have no perspective what a mess is to a kid living in a shelter versus a house. So we all went over and took a look at it. And they basically said, you know, what? we think we can renovate this within two weeks. And then they offered to work overtime and not charge for overtime. So all of a sudden, I mean, it was so fantastic. And we, I got the superintendent of both schools on the phone. Now, who could do that? You know how hard it is to get a superintendent on the phone? I'm like, all right, so Sam's live at this school, but she's going to be living in a house in this district. Is it okay if she then lives in this district and goes here, right? They both said yes. That normally doesn't happen. She had a dog in a shelter and I wanted that dog to get out because it was a, it was a dog that could be deemed, I think it was a pit bull or a Rottweiler. 
you know, they could have put the dog down. The dog didn't have the shots. And I called the shelter, said who I am. I'm like, let's move the dog out. Let's get the dog to a safe place. I will give you my credit card to like pay for the dog shots. Let's keep the dog okay until we get the family into this house, right? These are all this little stuff I'm doing behind the scenes with, with the county executive. And nobody knows, but people are answering my calls because I'm the chief deputy, right? Then the next day we announce, we send out a press release and saying, you know, that we're giving her a home, like the county's giving her a home in two weeks. And then everyone piled on board. I mean, as far as giving her all, like everything inside, new floors, if she came and picked out the floor, she was in 17, who would want to go pick out floors? But bathrooms are being renovated for free. I mean, all of this was being offered and then we were going to hand her the keys in two weeks. And in the meantime, the story went worldwide. And then she was invited to the State of the Union because this was January, right? She was invited to the State of the Union by Gillibrand. And then she was invited on the Ellen Jenner show and she was given a $50,000 scholarship. And this all happened because I had the resources. Public service teaches you how to be an advocate for yourself and teaches you how to be an advocate for others. It's taking the resources that are available to you to help others. And lawyering is the same thing. And the lawyering that I do with the families, I represent survivors of sexual assault. I represent uh, survivors of campus assault. In, you know, Title IX case, I represent families who lost their infants in the Rock and Place Sleeper by Mattelan Fisher Price before it was recalled. And all of these are, you know, contingency-based litigation. So, you know, I'm taking the resources that I have available to me. I'm taking my law degree. I'm taking my law firm, which I launched at the beginning of COVID. You could talk about that in a moment. And, and the team we have, what we have available to us to help them. Money is important. And I understand that. So to be able to represent them and help them get back as much money as possible is, again, me having this public service, sec- this public sector ethos that I have that I apply to a private law practice. So it does, going back to what your question was, they weave in together because when you're, especially on the plaintiff side, you're doing public service. When we come back, Regina will tell us about starting a law firm during COVID and how to balance our ideas of compassion with personal responsibility. Stay with us. I'm Luke W. Russell, and you're listening to Lawful Good. This show is made possible by the following sponsors. We are happy to partner with Milestone Foundation. Milestone Foundation provides the financial assistance plaintiffs and their families need to pay for basic living expenses during litigation. They offer non-recourse advances with low, simple interest so people in need can go the distance against deep-pocket defendants. Learn more at themilestonefoundation.org. A big thank you to Hennessy Digital. Jason Hennessy uses SEO to generate millions of dollars in results for law firms across the country. In his book, Law Firm SEO, Jason takes you behind the scenes to see what actually works to rank on Google. Pick up a copy of Law Firm SEO on Amazon or download it on Audible. Are you interested in learning trial skills from some of the best attorneys in the nation? Check out Trial School, a not-for-profit collaborative effort to provide free trial advocacy training for lawyers who represent people and groups fighting for social justice. Are you a personal injury attorney who's looking to get high-value cases? Our team at Russell Media has been doing social media marketing for PI lawyers for over a decade. 
And we're pretty comfortable in saying we've cracked the code because for years we've been generating six and seven figure cases for law firms through social media advertising. Curious? Head over to sevenfigurecases.com. That's the number seven, figurecases.com. When we left off, Regina was explaining how she went from a childhood of poverty and instability on Long Island to helping other vulnerable people as chief deputy of the same county. As we continue the conversation, Regina will share some amazing real-world changes that resulted from the success of her book. She'll tell us why she doesn't have a bucket list and what it means to be a forever mom. At the start of March 2020, you picked the best time to launch a new law firm. When did you meet Janine, your your co-founder? We met at Wolf Holdenstein. We had worked at Wolf Holdenstein for a while together before she left. And I was at that firm for a few years as well. I decided it was time for me to leave and I could go to another firm. Or it didn't really occur to me to kind of go out on my own. But through this process of evaluating you know, the clients that I had, the cases I have, and if they were willing to kind of come with me, you know, one of the things I learned was my value as an attorney. I had handed in my resignation on March 2nd, 2020. And I I said, I'll be here for another month and April 2nd will be my last day. And that was really, wasn't even COVID yet. I mean, we heard of it, but we didn't know what was going on until actually two weeks later. And I also, I couldn't take it back. You know, you can't say, oh, (laughs) I was just kidding. (laughs) I'm going to stay here. So, um, and there were those who I hired because at a certain point at the firm, I had the opportunity to be the chair of the associate hiring committee because I felt we needed diversity. And you have a lot of, you don't have a lot of diversity as many of these firms, especially the older plaintiffs firms, which, you know, this was. So I was bringing on incredibly talented, diverse associates. We ended up having a firm where we either have women and or people of color and or people who are LGBTQ. And, you know, the small, because it was eight of us amongst us, we were diverse in our own different ways. So anyway, so we ended up launching around April 2nd and then and then May 2nd, respectively. So the firm has been in place for two years. We were uh, selected as a trailblazer firm by the New York Law Journal in 2020. I was selected at Cranes, New York, um, one of the top 100 female lawyers last year. We're getting all this other like fantastic recognition. We've got great clients and we're doing great things for them. It is scary and it is difficult to run your own practice while you're litigating, but it can be done. Yeah. You mentioned your diversity. A lot of times diversity either happens for some firms by accident or it happens as an afterthought. For you, it was the point. So what is it for you when you like, what do you think a law firm gains by having an intentionally diverse team? Intentionally diverse opinions, views, perspectives, and debate, a healthy debate. And you learn more about each other by that. What type of cases do you have? What is the plaintiff like? What is people's preconceived notions of what this plaintiff may be like? And we have discussions And we end up where we should end up. And we end up a better firm. We are a better firm because of the diverse opinions and diverse experiences that we have. You know, one of the things that I do, and I started even at my other firm, is teaching not only, you know, the litigation side, but the business development side. 
And so I'm teaching our associates at a young age how to build business and how to own that. So I'm helping build the bench, right? When you bring up, because one day we would want, we need more people who are black and brown on the bench. And how do you get there? You, you have to raise, it's our responsibility to raise everyone up and give them the tools that they actually need to advance. And wherever they're going to go, like I know one day they may leave, but when they leave, I've given them every possible tool I can for them to like continue doing what they need to do to conquer the world and just be great attorneys. And that's to me, the importance of having the diversity at the beginning is I'm continuing to feed the pipeline that needs to be done to give voices to communities that, that haven't had as many voices as they should have had in the past, especially in, in the legal industry. Yeah, I love that, Regina. And as a, as a woman in a very heavily male-dominated industry, how often do people underestimate you? All the time. I'm constantly underestimated. But, but that's okay. I've always, always been underestimated. And there are times when I do like look at a Zoom, for example, with you know everyone else who's on the Zoom, even having you know Zooms or phone calls with the defense bar, as, as we are mostly plaintiff's firm. What I don't see are women my age. I see younger women. I very rarely see, see a, a woman in her mid-50s on these Zooms. And I think at a certain point, it's because they just get tired of there's misogyny in, in the legal industry and there has been for a long time. And they get tired of it and they don't stop you know, practicing law, but it's a lot easier to go in-house somewhere and be an in-house counsel or work for a not-for-profit go, or go work for government and use your law degree that way, and as opposed to litigating, because litigating is not easy. You, you always have an adversary. And, you know, I'd rather be underestimated than overestimated. Yeah. I imagine some people, Regina, like, listen to you and, and look at all these accomplishments, not to mention your accomplishments are impressive. And then when you look at the odds you overcame, that some might feel smaller or capable. And, and for anybody listening who doesn't believe that they have what it takes, what would you say to them? First, I'm going to speak to those who have, because that's one of the most important messages I always want to share is just to remind people the impact that they could actually have on somebody, whether it's a child in need or a young adult in need the impact that they could have on them and the control that they have over their interaction with them. If there is anyone in our life or we have any interaction with for that moment in time that you're before them, like you can really positively impact them. And you may not have any control over their destiny, any control over what happens to them next week, but you have your control over your interaction and your behavior. And if you do what you possibly could to make them feel good about themselves and all you're doing is adding to the pot. Because I was a transient kid. I went from place to place to place. There were more people who were building me up or making me feel positive about myself that, you know, my situation wasn't my fault and or that I was smart and I needed to stay in school. They had more, I had more of those good touches in my life than I had the bad touches. So I started believing that. And that's how it is I actually went on the journey that I did is because I started believing myself because you asked me like at what age did you start realizing you were winning arguments? I was winning arguments at like 12 or 13 years old. This was instilled with me by my aunt and uncle and who I was abandoned with before we were put into a foster home and that foster family. And then by high, then my elementary school teachers and some of the librarians I interacted with, some of the homes that I would go to. I would hear parents to tell their kids to stay away from me because of my situation. But there were also parents who found out how we were living and they'd like invite me over. 
And, you know, maybe I got a meal out of it. I mean, I always got a meal out of it and dessert and probably five meals. But sometimes I would just stand in front of the refrigerator seeing what else do I want to eat here. But I learned when I was in their house what a healthy family was. So if you see, like, I literally was able to put myself on this path because of what I was exposed to options and opportunities by complete strangers. So that's what I want to share with everybody here. Like you, you, And when you do that, you will never, ever know the impact that you make. Like there will be ripple effects from that. If you change someone's life just by being kind and having them feel good about themselves, you now have changed generations because they're not going to continue whatever cycle it is, right? Where they are, they're, they're going to look at themselves differently. Like my, I broke the cycle. My sister Camille like broke the cycle. She has five kids. Her and husband have been married 37 years. She's five children. Three of them are married. She's got four grandbabies. They will never like be exposed to what we were exposed to. So that is the first thing I, I want to just say, you know, to your listeners out there is that everything that you do when you are around someone who is vulnerable in some way, you could actually have a positive impact. And, and you, you may never know what that impact is, but it doesn't matter. But for those who are struggling, I ask them to be open to compliments to being supported. Many times I would not want anyone helping me out because I didn't, I always thought that there was another agenda, that they want something from me. And when you're on your own or you feel a bit alienated, you don't want support, but take whatever support you possibly can. Listen to people's compliments. Believe, believe what they're saying when they say good things about you and start doing whatever you possibly can to build up your confidence. And one thing I always share with those I speak to who are in a hard time and are struggling to get through what they're going to get through, they are building a skill set. You know, when employers are are employers looking for employees, you could look at someone's GPA, but they also want somebody who's resilient, who knows how to order chaos, who knows how to manage in a crisis, has perspective and is disciplined. So anyone who's going through a really hard time and gets through that hard time, you have ordered chaos. You have managed in a crisis. You have perspective because you know it's important. You're disciplined because you were able to get it together to do what you needed to do. That's a skill set that you always have to, that, that you have with you your entire life. And being in the workforce, those are things that you don't, you don't learn at school. Yeah, that's really powerful. Uh, Regina, I'd like to take a brief detour over to what we call our high velocity round. It's um, where we stick all our questions where we don't know how to work them in, but they're kind of silly and, and they're all yes, no. And the rule is you can't just answer yes or no. If you, you can say yes, but then I'm going to sit here silently until you give me something more than that. Okay. Does New York have the best antique stores? Yes. And I'm saying that because I really haven't looked at antique stores in other states. So yes. <laughs> is there a better song than Ain't No Mountain High Enough? No. No, that, that, that is a song about sticking together through the hardest times, but also letting go. And that's a song that my sister and I have, and especially my sister Camille and I have, that we were together in the hardest time, but we also needed to be on our own and learn how to be, and we're never going to let each other go, though, while we have let each other go. Yeah. Do you have a bucket list? No, I don't have a bucket list because my life has been an incredible journey that I never thought I would have experienced. There's nothing that I have that it's like aspirational. I, I've already exceeded every goal that I've met. And I'm just grateful that I wake up every morning and have another day to just be. But I do have a short-term goal is 
I have to pick out a crib and plan a baby shower for my forever daughter, Brazan. So that to me is incredibly important. I became a forever mom seven years ago to someone who's 21 years old and in the foster care system. And she was going through college at a 3.5 GPA, had a full scholarship, was a home health aide. I mean, she's a perfect 21-year-old kid, but her foster parents weren't going to get paid money for her anymore when she got kicked out of foster care. And so she called up, Roseanne called up an organization called You Gotta Believe that I've been affiliated with for a long time, where we raise awareness about the plight of older foster children and, and try to find a connection, an adult connection. Can you imagine matchmaking a teenager with an adult for parenting? It's worse than any kind of matchmaking. But um, when I heard her speak, I just felt like she was me. She was like a mini me and she was so close to succeeding, but so close to failing. So meaning that she could graduate college and she'll be okay, or she could drop out because she doesn't have anyone. She's on her own. She's just kicked out. So I started mentoring her while she uh, was looking for parents. She wanted a mom and a dad and two younger siblings. It's usually what every kid in foster care wants because they want to be able to be the boss of the younger siblings, right? <laughs> so anyhow, I started mentoring her and ultimately she started living with me. And then she asked me to be her forever mom. Seven years later, I mean, she, she graduated. She's working full time, like working to help other foster, older foster kids with the life plan. She's getting her master's degree in social work. She's about to wrap that up this fall. She's married and she's about to have her first little baby. So I'm going to be a grandma. So that is, um, when you think about a bucket list, I, I, I never, ever imagined I would be a grandmother. Oh. I mean, I don't, I didn't give birth to a child. And now I'm going to be a grandmother. So as far as a bucket list, I, I think I'm done when that little girl arrives in a few months. So Yes. Oh, I love that. I love that. Did you feel also the social pressures to be a mom? I always wanted to be a mom. But I went back and forth because I always thought, why would I ever bring another life into this world, right? There are so many kids out there that need a family. Like, why would I bring in a new one? as opposed to take care of a life that's already here that's in need. Will you tell us a little about your partner, Todd? Well, my companion, Todd, I have been, you know, I always was concerned about my ability to actually have a relationship and, and a commitment. I would always want to cut and run because then I was in control. See, in a relationship, you can't be in control, right? <laughs> There's no such thing. Maybe you're given a little bit one time by somebody and you're giving that other person it, but you can't. And I've always been used to being in control and doing exactly what it was I wanted to do on my own terms. So I just thought I was always going to be alone. And I've been with Todd for 15 years and we're not married, but that absolutely works for us. We feel that there's no reason to change something that's working. He is an amazingly patient man and has gone through every circus that I have dragged him into with, you know, with my career, with, with he was open to me being a forever mom to Brazan. And he's just excited about my excitement about being a grandparent. And he's given me a home. I mean, we have a house together, but we have a home and, and I am like firmly planted with my experience. Like I was always doing for everybody else. Always like always trying to make things better for others and wasn't really thinking too much about what would be healthy for me. And we've been together for 15 years and it's, it's been a crazy 15 years, but a fantastic 15 years. So, you know, I give, I give a lot of this to him, my success, because all he does is continue to encourage me. 
and support me. What have you learned about yourself in these 15 years that you've been together with Todd? I learned that I didn't trust. I just didn't trust. I always sometimes felt like, should I have the next be like another foot out the door, be ready to go, be ready to be by myself again. I trusted my siblings. I trust my friends I knew for a long time, but anyone outside of that, I I just wouldn't let them in. I had to learn how to trust and he taught me how to trust him and, and his family. Will you know when your work is done? No, I will never know. My work will never be done because I just need to keep raising awareness about, about the plight of foster children. And, you know, I wonder why it is that I went through the experience that I went through and that I was the outlier I was at that particular time. You know, I, I've learned that many years ago is that I'm here to help others that would not have had a voice. Your book, Eshton Sand, became a number one international bestseller and a New York Times bestseller. What was that like for you to take it very vulnerable? Like, it's very vulnerable to put that story out in the world and then to experience the reception of it. It was a fantastic journey. It's a fantastic opportunity to do that. I was, you know, very lucky that it was picked up by, by HarperCollins Publishing. I did not have an agent and I only had four chapters written. Again, that's a scenario where, you know, I went in and, and I pitched it and I pitched myself. I had to advocate for myself how this book was going to be sold, that people were going to buy it, even though I wasn't any kind of author or any kind of national name or anything else like that. When it hit the New York Times bestseller the first time, I was shocked. I never knew it would get there, nor would it be picked up by other countries. It was picked up in Canada, it was picked up in Poland, in Russia, by the way, it's printed in Russia. What happened at that point is I started getting contacted by many people who were thinking about um, adopting foster youth, never thought about the plight of older foster children, and started like realizing it's a lot easier with an older foster kid. You don't have to change their diapers. You know, you don't have to like pick them up from the bus stop. And uh, there are so many youth out there that need these homes. And that to me was the most powerful thing that, that could have happened. I have no idea of how many families went out and became forever parents. So I'm a forever parent. There's not a formal adoption, but you just make a commitment to an older youth. And um, which is what I, what I did with Brazan. I will never know the impact that I made. But I have to say, it's not even hundreds. It is, it is thousands. How many times I was contacted, the pictures that I have of families, but I, they made me a part of their journey. They introduced me to their children. The parents wanted something filled, it, you know, had to fulfill something, and they didn't know how to do it. And I helped them along this journey with this opportunity of, you know, to even consider like being a parent to an old, older foster child who's aging out. And look, I did it. And seven years later, I'm getting a grandbaby. I mean, you want to talk about a return on the investment? That's pretty good. <laughs> That's just a really good return on the investment. <laughs> that, that to me, was the most spectacular as far as the awareness and the platform that I had to raise awareness about foster children in the U.S. and older foster children and what, what happens to them. You know, I was never number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Only number two. I was number one international. But wait, only number two. My book went on the New York Times bestseller list shortly after it came out in 2013. Then it jumped back on on the spring, early summer of 2014. And as it was crawling up the top of the list, Maya Angelou passed away. People went out and they bought her book, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. I wasn't number one. 
but I got to be in a place that many authors haven't been. Number two to Maya Angelou. That I, it wouldn't even be on my bucket list. That's just, it's just too aspirational. So it shares like the power of her story and the power of my story and um, how it has impacted readers. Yeah. Sometimes folks will point to someone like you who uh, the impossible odds that you overcame and, and use that as a means to label those who don't make it out as lazy or bottom feeders and they should just pull themselves up by their bootstraps. You know, you you worked really hard and not everyone like learns that skill set and whether it's because of how they were beaten down or this or that. So how do you balance the compassion with also the call to to working hard? There's always a chance for someone to change what their position in this world is, but they can't do it alone. Again, they need to have, they may not have had, may not be because they're lazy. I was confident as a young woman. I had self-esteem. I was pushing back. I was advocating for myself because I had people reinforce to me how smart I was, for example, and um, that, that I can somehow control my destiny. So maybe no one ever said that to them. Maybe nobody ever built them up. And if you are, and if I was beat down all the time and I didn't have those good touches, I would be in the same situation they're in. So you may see someone who is not where you think that they should be, but then take a moment and figure out why and see what you can possibly do to help them. Don't blame them. Don't, don't categorize them or put them in a certain bucket. Find out why it is that they're there. And they may have the lowest self-esteem because everyone told them he's stupid. You don't deserve anything. That person's not going to change the way that they feel about themselves unless there are others that have come along and try to try to help them or get the help that they need to start thinking differently about themselves. I mean, how did I end up? I wasn't born this way. I mean, I wasn't born with self-esteem or confidence. It was instilled in me. Yeah. I want to go back to your daughter. And if it's appropriate, would you be willing to take us back to like what that conversation was like when she asked you to be her forever mom? I have a home on the North Fork of Long Island, and it's 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 very pretty out here. It's uh, the South Fork is the Hamptons. Some people may have heard of that place. The North Fork is not the Hamptons. It's low key. It's farmland. It's you know agriculture. There's wineries and beaches, and it's very nice. I allowed her to stay there in the summer. And, uh, and suggested to her that she stay there because she could work. It's the, it's the East End. I mean, even though it's not the Hamptons, she's a young kid. She was going to college. She could easily get a job because they're always looking for to hire kids in the summertime. So I had her living with me and she was dating a guy at that time and she wanted him to go. And I didn't want the package, but the only way I was going to get her there was to take the package. And I said, fine, you, you, you both are welcome. And they both got jobs and, you know, we're working separate jobs. And most of the time she just stayed in her room. Like she didn't, she didn't talk to me because at her foster home that she was at for a long time, it was very transactional. She just stayed in her room. They didn't have a relationship with her. She didn't have a gift. She didn't get a gift. Think about that. Can you imagine someone 21 years old? Like she never got a present. She didn't get a Christmas present. She didn't get a birthday present. I mean, there was no, like there's no family feeling that, that she ever got. Like they, it was, everything was just very transactional. They got a paycheck and, and, and she, she got a bed. So she didn't know even how to have a relationship with an adult. The fact she had a relationship with a boy shown she had some kind of ability to, to you know, to have to have a connection. And I just wanted to 
keep her close because while she was looking for parents and even while she was there, one of the parents and a couple that she was connecting with came down and visited her at this house. Like I wanted to be there and see how this connection was going. So we were, you know, we would talk about the family and a series of other things. And I remember we were sitting at a kitchen table and, and it was August and she just sat there and she just wasn't saying anything. And the fact that she was sitting there as opposed to downstairs, like the, it was a finished basement without a kitchen. So that she wasn't in the finished basement in her room on YouTube was like a big step up, but I couldn't figure out why she was sitting there. Because, you know, again, she wasn't yet all that communicative with me. And then she said to me, she said, I want you to be my forever mom. Will you be my mom? And, you know, I said, yes, because I couldn't say no. Right. I, I mean, I, I, I needed to be your mom. Then it went like literally went from that to figuring out where she's going to go for her master's program. What job is she going to get? You know, looking at all these different schools and kind of just like planning her future. And, you know, it, 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 it kind of ebbed and flowed as far as us being close and, and not close because it's what she's going through, how she's feeling. And then the awkwardness is like, here's this woman and she's my mom, but she's not my biological mom. And, you know, there's so much that goes on with this. And then she had bio siblings that she did not really want to say that she had a mom because she didn't want them to be upset that she has a mom. You have like all of these layers of, of complexity in this relationship with this young woman. And then to make the circle complete, she actually ends up working in child welfare, right? The irony is I kept telling her, like, don't go into child welfare. It is something too big that we just can't fix. And you're going to be so frustrated by what you see. Like, I never went into working in any kind of child welfare professionally because I just felt that I'm going to be in situations where I can't control and I can't take these kids home and I can't make their life better. But she jumped right into it. And she, like, she literally took her experiences with us with me giving her a safe place and trying to convince these kids to have parents and why it is they should be open to having a parent. Now, can you imagine to like a 14 year old or 18 year old that spend their entire life, like raising themselves basically, or being traumatized that you should go have a parent now that some person they don't know should tell them how it is that they're going to live their life. But she like literally took her, our experiences together and is taking it and telling them why it's important that they should have this adult connection, that maybe they should contact you, got to believe, or they could have a life plan because look at her. Like she was kicked out of foster care and now she's like getting her master's and all of this. And it came from, it came from me opening up my heart and my home. And it came from her feeling safe enough to trust me. And that is not something that is easy for someone who's been traumatized the way that she and other kids have been traumatized. What a lot of people, I think, or at least some people, I don't, I don't know about a lot of people, but it seems like there's a decent amount of people who just don't realize older kiddos and young adults want parents. And I think about how, like, you know, she has someone to call when she's trying to figure this out, or if it's about buying a house, or if it's a career. You know, you talked about her working on her master's, and it's somebody to call to plan a baby shower. Like, that's something that these young adults and these older kiddos aging out, they don't have that. They don't have that. They all deserve to have a safe place to put their head down. They really do. Many of them will, will never have it. And unfortunately, many of them will end up being statistic because they have no one to catch them when they fall. But so many of them do. And, you know, a large part of our population of older foster youth who are end up in the foster care system because they're kicked out of their homes are openly LGBTQ. That's a huge percentage of our foster, of our older foster youth in the system. 
And I'll tell you, there are many couples out there. I mean, in, individuals or couples, singles, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. I have a friend, Mary Keene, who is one of the top people that you got to believe. She's been adopted 15 kids, <laughs> 15 of them, all young adults or teenagers when they came to her. And her concern was that, you know, she was learning about all of the, these young women who were getting kicked out of their homes because they came out as lesbians. And there are so many people out there that will just embrace, embrace any child. They didn't do anything wrong. They just came out of the closet and, and the parents were parenting them the entire time. And all of a sudden they're kicked out of their home. And we, you have that in New York City. You think in an urban area, there'd be a little bit more open mindedness, but that is a huge part of our older foster youth. And they, you know, if there's anyone interested, at all in, in learning about being a forever parent or, or just being a loving, safe, responsible adult to an older youth or maybe even an, an adoptive parent. Cause not everyone wants to be adopted at an older age, but contact, you got to believe it's, it, they're based in Coney Island. They're based in New York. They've got relationships, you know, across the country and they'll be able to plug you into some kind of map training. So you could go to the proper training that you need for youth who are traumatized because Kate kicked out of their home. They're traumatized just because they came out of the closet. I mean, there's, there's different levels of trauma. And then you could learn more ab- about parenting them and just being available to them, just being a safety net. And just once you start doing this, just expect putting a few more plates around your table because it's hard to stop at just one. I've realized that with many other parents it really is. Yeah. After the life you've lived, the work you do, when you think about the future, do you feel hopeful? Well, you're asking me this question in the middle of a war in Eastern Europe, just coming out of a pandemic. And I've always felt hopeful. And I was hoping that the pandemic would change people and that would soften them, make them more compassionate, give them more perspective. Everyone knows somebody who died. Many people barely survived this. And then we go from that to, you know, the level of anxiety and and, and tension in this particular country. And then, of course, we've got war in Eastern Europe. But we have to continue being hopeful. We have to just continue moving forward and being kind and being compassionate and doing what we possibly can to help others, whether it's families in Ukraine or like kids who are now parentless in Ukraine or kids who are parentless here. Like at some point, we all can take some kind of step or responsibility for like helping a parentless kid out there just, just finding their way. Because again, if we do, we could have other Brazans that are breaking the cycle and then they're giving back and then their kids are going to be giving back. And you just got have to keep doing that moving forward despite all the darkness out there. Yeah. Okay, Regina, I'd like to fast forward to your 80th birthday celebration. Okay. And... People you love from all throughout your life are present. A gentle clinking on glass can be heard, and a hush washes over the room. People raise their glasses to toast to you. What are three things you would want them to say about you? That I always made them laugh. Always encourage them to be who they are and feel comfortable in their own skin. And that I always love them. To learn more about Regina, visit reginacalcaterra.com or calcaterrapollock.com. You can purchase Etched in Sand and Girl Unbroken on Audible and Amazon. A few notes before we wrap up. Please check out our season three sponsors. 
be sure to check out Jason Hennessy's book titled Law Firm SEO if you want the best knowledge available in the industry. To any plaintiff's attorneys who have clients in need of simple interest loans, check out the milestonefoundation.org. If you'd like to join a growing group of attorneys that are actively working to improve their trial skills, head over to trialschool.org. For personal injury lawyers looking to acquire big cases through social media, visit sevenfigurecases.com. And if you want to experience rich human connection, join our LinkedIn group by going to joinbettertogether.com. By the way, are you looking for more great podcasts? I am also the host of two other shows coming out this year, and you can go ahead and subscribe to them today so that as soon as we start releasing episodes, you'll be the first to know. Check out the Trusted Legal Partners podcast, a place where you can find good people doing good work in the industry. I am also the host of the Society of Women Trial Lawyers podcast. There, you'll find inspiring stories from women attorneys across the nation. You can find links to these in the show description, and they're also available on the same places you hear lawful good. Thanks so much for listening this week. This podcast is produced by Kirsten Stock, edited by Kendall Perkinson, and mastered by Guido Bertolini. I'm your host, Luke W. Russell, and you've been listening to Lawful Good.